So hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Jim McRae and I'm chatting with director David Burke about his fabulous film, Father of the Cyborgs. It's about neurologist Phil Kennedy who made global headlines in the late 90s by connecting the brain of a paralyzed man to a computer and it follows his life and career. This is the sound of your brain firing. My life's work has been to connect these brain waves to machines. Between your temples lies a machine more marvelous than anything else we know in the universe. Phil Kennedy's original research was pioneering. My short-term goal is to help people who are locked in to communicate. It gave him a reason to live. This had never been heard of before. What, you can control a device with a brain directly? He wanted to do something to stay a step ahead. I decided the best thing to do was to implant myself. It's, it's an absolute fascinating um, watch. If you could tell me a little bit about how you came to get following the work of, of Phil. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I was originally looking to do something in the field of bioengineering. I didn't have any set topic in mind. It just seemed kind of logical to me that there would have to be interesting people in this field, people that were trying to connect people with machines. And that's where I started. And cutting a long story short, when I found Phil Kennedy, I knew this was the guy. I knew I wanted to do something on him. I mean, he was a pioneering neuroscientist. He was compared to Alexander Van Bell in the Washington Post in the 90s all the way up until he ended up experimenting on himself, putting brain implants inside his own brain. And I mean, self-experimentation itself is, is new in science, but I think what Phil did was deemed to be so extreme, putting implants in your own brain, that he was kind of, wouldn't go as far as saying ostracized, but he was kind of, you know, people questioned whether it was a good idea or not. So I just knew this was the guy um, that I wanted to do something on. And, just as a side point as well, Phil is from Limerick and I'm from Ennis. I mean, I couldn't believe that he's from Limerick about among, among other things. So we just, that's that's where the project started, basically. And he is, like, he is, he's such a, he's such an interesting, complex character. Like, that's it. If you, if you had no interest or didn't give a crap about science, it's a fascinating watch as a character study as well, because, you know, you, you I don't want to kind of go too far in. We'll just, it, it's, it's set the setup and then, you did just mention there where it goes. So I'm not giving too much away by by going. It, it follows the career of this man, and you know he's kind of uh, this this kind of hotshot doing these these quite experimental things. But I mean, as as oh, I yeah, I don't want to give too much away for people who don't know. And it's but you know he starts off at these kind of brilliant heights, and then it goes into that complexity, and and when he faces certain difficulties, and I'm like that is just so interesting. Um, and he's very honest about it. That's so. This is this is actually one of the things. Um, how how did you kind of get him on board with it and build such a good rapport? Sure. Um, I think we initially got development funding from Screen Ireland to make a little teaser, and then to, to, to take that teaser to try to get additional funding to make it. And I think that's a really good idea, just in general, because you end up spending time with the person, and you just you know they you basically build a relationship and you build up trust with them. And I think that's one of the really good things with development funding, that you get the opportunity to spend time with the person before the project is actually fully funded. So when it is funded, you're, you're, you're quite, he's quite, he was at the time when we actually got funding. He was very familiar with us. He was very comfortable with the process. He also saw the trailer that we'd made, so he kind of knew the way we were going to take it. So he was very comfortable with it. 
Um, I think one of the main, one of the more interesting parts of the doc is the self-experimentation itself. And there is actually footage of the self-experimentation, which I couldn't believe. It's definitely one where I was watching with my mom and she had to close her eyes and go make tea while we were watching that. Like it, it's quite graphic. Um, like some sections of it, which, yes. you know, and it kind of, it, it's the truth of this is what the, you know, like if there's, there's the concept of this is what these are doing, but it's, it's, you know, like that it's, it's a chip that goes in your brain and all the messiness that goes with it. I mean, just, I mean, I couldn't believe that there was footage of it in the first place. I think the people that were involved with the procedure did it for insurance reasons or something like that. So that's why the footage existed in the first place. But Phil, I mean, he was... I don't think he would have let us use the footage when we first met him for the trailer. We didn't have the footage, but then when we came back maybe a year later to make the documentary properly, he was he had no problems with us using the footage then. He knew, I mean, if you saw the footage that, I mean, we, we didn't really use it um, to, we didn't go overboard, I think, in its use. We, I think there's about 50 seconds of operation footage, full stop. I mean, there's, there was an hour of footage, some of it you definitely wouldn't use. Um, but he was totally comfortable with us using it at that point. But I think we, we have to build up the trust in order for him to give us the footage we have in, in the first place, I guess. There's some very candid interviews where, you know, he talks about the kind of warts and all elements of that. And I'm like, how long were you guys shooting together? And I often think this, like, do you end up kind of forming a friendship with the subject? You do. Well, I think it kind of, I know of, some people kind of try to keep removed from the people that they're working with. I, I don't really do that. Um, I think it's just, we're both human, we're both, you know, it's inevitable that you form some relationship, whether you're trying or not. So why try to kind of make things unusual or something like that? We, we just got along. I think um, we were all basically in, into one team. We were all working towards the one goal. That's the way I, I kind of looked at it. And Phil, yeah, he's just, like I said, Phil is his own man he's always been his own man even when he started his career the field that he kind of pioneered brain computer interfacing no one was really doing it at the time so phil was even kind of um, doing his own thing back in the 80s and before that so maybe the self-experimentation was just a continuation on of who he, he is he just does his own thing so he does his own thing and he doesn't really i wouldn't say he doesn't care what other people think but it doesn't bother him too much so he's, that's why I think it's why he's so comfortable speaking so candidly. He'll, if you ask him a question, he will get, he will give you a 100% straight answer. And I mean, he wasn't shy in telling me, I mean, I'm, I asked him questions at the start that, I mean, I'm not an expert in neuroscience scientist. And he wasn't shy telling me that, you know, the question was stupid either, you know, and in fairness, it wasn't probably a stupid question. I just want to go back a little bit about, because it is like, it's such, it's such a gorgeous documentary. I want to go back and kind of pick out how it came about. So you had this idea that you were that you were like you pitched to Screen Ireland, you got your development funding, and then they came on board. I presume it cost a bit more because there's a lot of traveling back and forth from the states and a lot of expense of stock footage, which can be very very expensive. And I'm just wondering how, like as a documentary maker as well, you have to spend so much time everywhere all the time so i'm just wondering like what was what is your process there when it comes to filming when it comes to getting the funds to shoot what you want we were lucky i mean one of the great things when i first discovered the story was that phil was irish so i knew that you know we would appeal to screen ireland and i knew that it would appeal to rd and colin mccallaghan in the very very early days as well was interested he's commissioning it in rd he was very interested in the project so even from the early days, it was probably in quite a good position that we had development from Sweden Ireland and the new RD were interested in it. And then 
we made the trailer and then RTE wanted to get aboard and RTE were able to bring Science Foundation Ireland in as well to part fund it. So we had RTE's Science Foundation Ireland and then Screen Ireland came in as well to back it. Then, as you mentioned, there's so much stock footage and traveling, it's just the money just bleeds out of the account so quickly. So we were lucky, there's a fund in the States called the Alfred Pete Sloan Foundation, and they fund a lot of stuff for PBS and stuff like that. They fund, they basically, they fund science research, but they also fund uh, stories that promote science in the, for, for the general public. But we were lucky that they were the final partner that, that came in to kind of give us the final piece of the funding that we needed. Probably would have been struggling without that final piece, I'd say. I don't think we probably would have had to compromise it somewhere, but we were lucky we had a week got the budget we needed to make it. You could always spend more money if you had it, but we had enough to make what we wanted, I guess. Um, one of the things I love is how uh, just dynamic the uh, edit is. I know Cara Holmes did that edit and there's beautiful graphics as well. Like there's real energy to it. I think that's like a, a vibrancy and it, it makes it so, so easy to watch. And I'm just wondering how does the edit of something that's so complex that spans a man's career how, how does that happen? And, you know, that kind of takes place a little bit real time, a little bit in the past. Um, I'm just wondering, how how long did it take to edit, basically? And what was the process? I think it took around, oh, it must have taken definitely four months anyway. Um, I think I had, basically, I had the structure, A structure, not the structure, uh, on paper, where I had beat sheets, basically each sequence uh, in, a, in, a, in a line. And then that was our starting point with myself and Cara. Holmes, who was the editor, and then we just basically, we cut the interviews, and then we just started cutting the sequences. It was obviously way too long. One of the first things we had to do was really simplify the science. I mean, the science is way too complicated. It's too dense, too much information for people to take on. So we simplified all that, and we focused mainly on, on Phil's story. That was one of the things I think Carol was really good with that. I was kind of honest. There were so many rabbit holes that you could kind of go down in this field of brain computer interfacing. So we just kind of paired it all back. We kind of made it about Phil Kennedy and sold Phil Kennedy. We, what we did, we have experiments filmed that, that we, we actually cut out. There was this experiment that where people are sending signals from one brain to another brain just by thinking they're just wearing these kind of hats. So we had all that in it, but it was too far removed from Phil Kennedy. So we just cut all that out and kept it streamlined. The car was brilliant with that. She was also good with kind of using sample music as well kind of give a tone and a feel to the documentary. And I think I was lucky, so Cara brought that and Simon O'Reilly who did the music, I think he did a brilliant job of music as well. I think that really just helps, it just adds to the style, I guess, as well. Yeah, I, and I do think like there's a great sort of emotion captured there as well. And I think like, you know, for someone maybe like me that wouldn't necessarily have a huge background knowledge or maybe going into it for that reason and that I think you get the complexities of his relationship with this family and you interview his son and and it's nice because it isn't like I adore my I mean obviously he thinks very highly of his father but you get like that um like a, a bit of emotional honesty because you know it's difficult like I mean again he went and experimented on himself as a as a father with a family that's so dangerous and you 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 kind of capture that um those emotions and and yeah then and and as well like his disappointment and his involvement with his patients which i think is is beautiful and it, it again it, it kind of weaves those different narratives through it i think it's quite easy to kind of again i mentioned rabbit holes it's quite easy to kind of go down the science fiction rabbit hole about the subject matter i think 
ultimately what it's about though is what a guy who spent his life trying to help patients that's really Phil Kennedy in, in a nutshell trying to sum it up and you're right that that was one thing that I noticed with all the people that Phil worked with be it his colleagues who he interviewed or his past patients they all really spoke super highly of him I think they all understood where his motivations were coming from and that was kind of one of the things that we try to get across as well that he isn't a mad scientist. So, I mean, when I first come across him, that's initially, you know, your initial thought is this guy, you know, you see what another stereotypical mad scientist, but he's the thing that surprises, he's not mad at all. He's, he's the most sane person of us all probably, you know? Yeah, because you do, you think that as well. Like you get like a, a beach sheet and you're like, oh God, <laughs> like, but like that, yeah, they do speak so highly of him and the patients speak so highly of him. And, and again, like you see how affected he is by the patients, like part of it is that he can't let it go. And that's, that's his drive, which is a beautiful sense of, of humanity to the, to this piece as well. Like he's such a, an interesting character. So how does he feel being the center of a documentary now? Because he's doing a lot of press for it, which is great. <laughs> it doesn't bother, it doesn't phase him at all. Again, it's just like water off duck's back. I mean, he just doesn't, doesn't phase him. He just gets on with it. It's like, you know, I mean, his attitude to people criticizing him, experimenting on his own brain is, it's my brain, not yours, get over it. So it's just, just press, whatever, just another day. He'll leave with it. I mean, he, he doesn't really get stressed at all, to be honest with you. Right. And, and does he enjoy sort of the, like, I suppose if you, if you've done so much work over your lifetime and like, you know, like in the nineties and then like a little bit later, he would have been kind of like a spotlight. It's a nice thing to have your work acknowledged then and, and kind of bring it to a whole new generation of millennials and Gen Zers who maybe just weren't around at that time to appreciate it. Like there was technology being used in this film that I've seen and you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that was his. Yeah, um, I think, um, I think personally, I think it would be great if Phil did get some recognition for what he did, particularly in Ireland where people may, may not know his name. But I don't think that was Phil's main uh, motivation for doing the documentary. I think his main motivation for doing the documentary is to keep going with his work, to help his work. I think he's still looking for funding and I think he thought this may help. And I think that was his motivation. I think he also wanted to kind of uh, get the word out or kind of get ex basically people who may not have, have approved of his uh, self-experimentation. I think he wanted to kind of set the record straight there as well to kind of maybe explain what his mo real motivations were, that this wasn't some vanity project that he just went off to South America and did this kind of wild experiment on himself. You know, he was doing it to try and progress his research and get to the next stage. I think I think that was his main motivation for doing it really. And speaking of life's work, like let's let's go back to you because this is this is about your um beautiful project that is being birthed into the world that will be hitting cinemas on Friday. Um yeah. so I just wanted to go back. How did you get into filmmaking yourself? Like what was your entry there? Uh, I think when I was a kid, I kind of was taking little Polaroid pictures, like this is back in the 80s. I think that was my initial starting point. And I think then growing up as maybe 10, 11, 12 year old, I remember just watching football games and you see the cameraman and I thought, oh, that looks like a cool job. And then, a few, and then when I was a late teenager, I think my dream job would have been making music videos. And then somewhere along the line, the penny dropped that even if I went to the top of that field, you'd just be making videos of Kylie Minogue and that, you know, that would wear thin pretty quickly. So I think from the music element, that's, I kind of then decided, I thought, oh, I'd love to make music documentaries. And that's kind of the route I kind of took into it, I guess. Do you have, say, bread and butter jobs that you would do? And then this, you'd have like your, like, how do you structure your career, if that makes sense? I'm just interested to somebody who's doing it at this level, because 
like would you kind of do your day nixers and then have one or two passion projects on the slate focus only on the passion projects and take the nixers as they come like it's just interesting to know before i had nixers as you said but um, now the last two three years i haven't just they just get in the way i find because you can't do everything there's just there's always a job on a friday that just gets in the way of what you're doing so i'm trying to avoid all them and just stick with big projects I'm working on two documentaries at the moment now. One is kind of a co-production with an international company that we're kind of putting stuff together at the moment. And I have another kind of more Irish-centric project as well. So I think if you just, I think it's just a case of being a little bit organized, a little bit better with time management. That, that's what it is for me anyway, I think. I think you can just do it, you know, just, I mean, you don't, I mean, you don't have to go work in, you know, 14 hours a day or anything like that. I think if you're just organized, I think I read somewhere before that you only have about five good hours a day anyway. So if you work five good hours a day and maybe just do emails for the other two or three or something like that, you should be on the right track, hopefully. But that's what I'm planning. Maybe in a year's time, I will be completely revoked what I just said. Actually, we'll go back to this project and use it as, a, as, as just a bit of a sample. So the life cycle of this was it was pitched, it was in development, it was then development funding, and then you got completion funding sort of after a while. So from initial idea stages till the end, how long did it take in total? I would say, I think we pitched this at the Sheffield Dock Fest in 2018, I think it was. So it's probably taken, yeah, maybe three, two, two and a half years anyway to get it up and going. Um, just took a little while just to get fine, little piece, piece of financing, really. I mean, you make it in a year easy if everything fell, fell into, into your lap, which, you, which it never does, of course. But um, yeah, it was probably two and a half years, I'd say anyway. But time is your friend as well, because you can, if you rush something, you may not have the, the, the concept fully thrashed out in your head as well, you know? So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think too much time is a bad thing because it just, you know, it, it might just get out of reach and you can't grasp, grasp it again. But I think a little bit of time just to fully develop, but develop your ideas, go away, have away maybe park for a week or two and come back again and maybe even a month or two and come back again i think that really helps because you, you bring fresh ideas when you when you look at it again after after time spent away from it i think and how different would the final piece be to the, your first um say pitch document that you put together surprisingly enough i think it was pretty close to what i said it would be um Maybe visually it was a little bit different, but it did take all the beats and followed not the exact structure, but maybe a structure, 80% of the structure. Uh, it, it followed the original Bob Bob's pitch for um, production funding. And I was kind of surprised myself, actually, to be honest with you, how close, how close it was. Sometimes during the edit, we were experimenting and stuff and we kind of divulged away, but it always kept coming back to what was the original plan. It just because I had spent so much time to developing the, that beat sheet that we brought to the edit, I think. I suppose he's such an interesting character, but I mean, I'm sure you found out all these like brilliant nuggets along the way that are in the film, but you're saying structurally it, it stayed the same, which is, which is amazing. And do you find that's normally the way with, with a documentary project? Because truth can be so different sometimes to what you expected. Well, actually, essentially you did, there is, there was one thing that we didn't have in the, in the initial proposal for funding. And it was, um, we, we were, we, we'd actually finished filming. We were done for the day. And I was just, as you mentioned, I was just trying to drag any bit of information out of him at all. And then I don't know where he mentions that he worked for a homeless charity in Dublin in the seventies. Like, really? You never told me that. And then he was telling us about this guy, Christy, who was one of the people he helped there. Uh, Christy was a homeless person, and then he goes into this story about Christy 
schizophrenic and he had all this you know, really troubled background. And then it was Christy who actually told Phil, you know, do something with your life, get out of here. You, you can do so much more with your life and you should move to America. And it was Christy, this person that he helped in a homeless shelter that kind of inspired Phil to go to America. Now that just fell in her lap. I was really, like, it's like, we've been debating this for a year and you're telling me this now, you know? And that's it. But you have such good coverage of so much of these anecdotes in the the visual element of that. Like how how difficult was that to to find? And it's that's a really good question because it's funny. The second Phil told me that story, I just thought there's no way we'll ever get photos of Ty Christie. But then we ended up getting photos of Christie because one of the Alice Lee from the Alice Lee Trust was. Uh, she worked closely with Phil back in the 70s with, with homeless people. So we interviewed her and she actually had access to, to the photos. So it's like, I, but I didn't, couldn't even have imagined we get these photos. Like that. I remember at the time thinking, oh, it's a pity we'll never get photos of that. But then we ended up finding. Because, yeah, because I can picture him as well. Like that's one of that, that the, the kind of iconic visuals of that. And it was the perfect origin story as well when you're, when you're doing the real life version for Netflix. Yeah, it's the... Um, it was actually Derek Spears, the, the famed photographer. He he actually took them photos. That's why they're so good. But they're, yeah, they're, it's interesting that you mentioned them. Yeah, they're outstanding photos, right? You can really see into this guy, into his soul, I guess. He's such a kind of wealthy character when it comes to uh, just anecdotes and situational things. And, and, and his life is so rich and interesting. Were there certain things you had to leave on the floor for maybe appropriateness or time that you'd you'd love to have put in if possible? I always think that like you do have to kill darlings. Um, I think one of the, it was a little bit. Some of his kids were a little bit reluctant initially getting involved. Um, I think maybe we would we could have, would have interviewed one or two more of them, but I think one of them was for his job. He wasn't allowed to uh, interviews for TV, so that, that was fair enough. And his daughter was a little bit hesitant, which I think is understandable as well. I think she she was totally against self-experimentation, which is fair enough. So yeah, maybe we would have got another member of his family, but no, there was nothing really, everything that I really wanted to put in, we put in, you know. I think stuff that we kind of left out was probably not the relay material, I guess. But like as I said with Phil, there, there was everything was on the table. You mean he he was actually he welcomed us that, that we put in some of these things because he felt he would it was going to make the documentary better, you know. So he was totally open to opening himself up, I guess. And is it nerve-wracking watching a subject matter? Because I know at, at the time that we're recording this, um, I think it was the Alanis Morissette documentary has just played Tiff and it did not go down well with this subject. Like, obviously, he's delighted because he's doing all the press for it. But there must be that moment, like, if, if you haven't been in touch, where you're showing it to them and it's so nerve-wracking. There is, but there's, there's no way around that. You just have to, you know, send it. Send, like, we sent Phil a few rough cuts, and, you know, but there's no way around it. It is nerve-wracking. You just have to wait, um, wait for him to come back, and hopefully it's positive. With, with Phil, he was very positive um, all the time. Um, the last documentary I did, which on a Poulon crash and burn, like Tommy Byrne, is he was he's, they're completely different characters, but they're both kind of out, outsiders in their own way. Like Tommy was he's a race, he was a race crowd driver, but he was described as like he's a bit like George Best, I guess. But Tommy wasn't happy at all. He was effing and blinding as usual, and you know, it was hilarious. And I mean, maybe he had a vibe, but Tommy subsequently did an interview. I think remember it was, it was with the Times I think, in England. He was still criticizing the documentary when he's meant to be promoting. And I'm like, oh Jesus, Tommy, give me a break. 
but it was funny that the, the, the journalist kind of was pretty sharp and he recognized that this is a guy, you know, this is why he didn't make it in the first place because he couldn't shut his mouth, you know. So we kind of we kind of worked in that way. Because like for anybody, like I'm sure like any human, definitely myself included, you have like this picture of yourself. And then when you do get like, I mean, it's not warts and all. It's a very warm piece of him. Um, but like, you know, there's, there's some complex issues addressed in it that, you know, you would... You know, and I suppose as well, like people at that level, I think there's normally a huge element of ego that helps them attain those goals as well. So you can totally like it's nice to see someone who, you know, was happy and easy going and going, yeah, I really like that documentary. Yeah, I mean, there, there are one or two. We have some ethicists in Featured in the Doc and one or two of them come out with some really juicy lines about Phil that, that are complimentary. And I mean, we were kind of wincing when we put them in the editor, right? But they had to go in, you know. But again, Phil, he's really, he's obviously a really, really sharp, smart guy. And he understood why they were in. And he understood also that they were balanced, you know, that we, we weren't, it wasn't just a hatchet job. So yeah, as I said, he doesn't really, he's not phased by what other people think. He was actually, in some ways, he was a dream subject to make a documentary of really. There's a very sort of distinct style. Um, again, it's like, I, I definitely think that there's that vibrancy from, from the edit, but there's like really fun graphics and things like that. Do you have a storyboard in mind when you're going into it or did you play around? I know you had to explain those really complex ideas. Did you play around with stuff visually to get that across the board? Like how, how do these things work themselves out? I kind of had an idea in my head. We didn't have a visual board or anything like that, but I had an idea, a rough idea of how, what it would look like. And then I think the best way of doing it is you can have all the storyboards you want, but when you put code, Playing with it in the edit is completely different, so that's the only place to do it. Rather than sometimes you could, you have a fixed idea, you kind of forget about other ideas that you can play with in the edit. So we had I had a loose idea of stylistically what these elements would look like, and then it brought the elements to Cara, and she somehow understood what I was trying to say, and she was and she brought her obviously her own flavor to it as well. So that's kind of how we did it. So I had a rough idea going into the edit, and then I let Cara do her magic. Because it's a lot of different. Um components put together you know like there's there's that kind of medical footage there's stock footage and things like that but it's again it's a very kind of seamless watch and a nice narrative structure so it's not it's not a super easy balance um do you ever get frustrated because i know with documentary it is all about editing editing do you ever kind of get stuck or is there any kind of tricks of the trade that you know now not to avoid or anything like that as somebody who's kind of coming out the other end of some pretty substantial work yeah i think sometimes you just have to make kind of big decisions in in the edit and just see does it work this i mean you know intuitively if it works or not but um, i'm a bit of a warrior anyway so i kind of like to have my homework done before i go to the edit i don't try try to avoid these nasty surprises to be honest with you so i really relied on beat sheets and just kind of continuously renewing beat sheets as as we went along and just playing with the structure myself on paper of course that's kind of the way I kind of try to avoid these nasty surprises, but th th that's it really. I think just preparation is the, is the key, really, making sure that you have all the footage covered, that you have a variety of footage from different locations when you're shooting, and then that you know that you have your certain archive footage to cover other elements as well. And then can you kind of, is there any way that you can kind of 
interweave or blend these kind of elements. So it's just you're bringing something new. It's kind of like you know, associative editing, I guess, is what they call it. You know, so I think that's kind of what I kind of interests me really, where you can kind of put two elements that you that weren't necessarily born together. They put them side by side, and then you go, oh, there's something new there. That's kind of what kind of that, that excites me this week. Maybe it'll be something else, you know, next year. I don't know. And do you think that's it? Do you think that's kind of your voice then as a documentary filmmaker is is finding that tone and presenting it in that visual way? I think I think it depends. It depends per project. I think I think every project is different. They have different. Like the last, I did. I've done three documentaries and I'm doing a fourth. And I think they have one thing in common that they're all basically about kind of outliers and they're all about stories that people don't really know about um, and possibly should. But the people themselves are completely different. So I think each doc has their own different style um, visually. I think just that's just the way my approach is. I just don't think the style that I, we use in this documentary group could work on the next one. They're just totally different people, you know? So yeah, I just, I, um, I just, you kind of get ideas. I mean, again, I mentioned time, it's putting together a documentary. It's like, it's not one idea, it's a thousand little ideas. And then maybe from a thousand little ideas, 900 of them are terrible. And you, you pick the best 100 and that works for this particular story. I think that's the way I, I would do it anyway. And do you mean the the story around this specific story or do you mean this is how you find your um, your stories to tell as a documentary filmmaker? Both. I think, like I said, um, I think 100 different ideas relates to all elements of, of putting it together. It could be the music, it could be the editing, it, all across the board. And then like, sometimes you have an idea for music that may not work with your edit, so you, you have to scrap it. Just things like that. I mean, even for example, I mentioned Simon Riley did the music. I mean, I asked him if there's a daft question one day when he was doing music. Do you, can you, do you know that kind of unusual instrument of thermal? It's basically like a bar and you move your hand in and out and it makes this kind of weird kind of humming noise. I asked him, did he have a thermal? He's like, oh yeah, I sampled one there a few weeks ago. And I said, no way, stick a thermal in it. So there is a thermal in the, you know, in the opening track now, because it's just a kind of spooky, kind of unusual, kind of spooky type of kitsch sci-fi type of sound, I guess, really. So th that was just one idea that I kind of, you know, just as a, as a throwaway example, I guess, that, that isn't obvious, I guess. And actually, that's that's interesting as well when you're talking about those coming up with those ideas and going to the outlier thing. Um, how do you, you find a subject? I know we kind of talked specifically about this, but do you, like, read the papers? Do people send you stuff now? Is it, like you'll hear a snippet of an interview like what what are the things like how do these stories kind of make their way to your brain so i think when it comes to ideas i think um i remember I, myself sean Poulon always kind of spoke about this like too many ideas can be as bad as having no ideas because if you have too many ideas you can't focus on one and you really need to focus on one idea but the, the kind of the rope here is that in order to come up with the one killer idea sometimes you have to come up with a thousand ideas you know to pick the best one so i think coming up with ideas in general is like it's like anything else, you have to kind of practice it. You know, you can't just sit, work on a project for two years and don't think about new ideas and then, then suddenly expect one to fall into your lap. So I kind of just, I'm always kind of just look on the lookout for stuff really, I guess. Um, and I mean, it can take so long to finish one project before you get on to the next. You only really think about it logically, you have to come up with one good idea once every 18 months. It's not that high, high turnover if you think about it like that, you know? So, but I'm always just kind of keep my nose to the ground and seeing, seeing what's out there. And I'm sometimes wondering... it's by chance, and sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes like, like this one, I specifically would look for an idea in a field I found it. But this was the first time I did that. And what is it about the outlier thing, do you think, that is that attracts you? Is it the 
the connection to the rogue filmmaker? <laughs> is it the, you know, that kind of creative brain, but in a different field? I don't know, to be honest with you. I think it, it certainly wasn't something that I started off intentionally thinking, thinking I'd make kind of films about outliner, outliners, not at all. It's just purely coincidental. And funny, the next two projects that I'm developing are the exact same. They're both complete outliers as well. And people like kind of these unknown hidden stories. I have no idea. It's just, it's not something I consciously do. Um, it's, it just obviously appeased me somewhere deep in my subconscious or somehow I have no idea. I just think a lot of, the way I kind of think about it is that there's a lot of, ideas that are made in documentaries that are kind of obvious ideas. So the way, I, and, I, and I watch them and I enjoy them, I think they're great. But they're kind of, I, the way I look at this, people are, are already looking after that. So, and there's so much, much other cool stuff going on. So many other interesting people. So that's kind of, I think, part of the motivation, I guess, anyway. And I've always kind of liked weird bands, weird books. So maybe I just kind of have proclivity towards it anyway. If you went back to when you started this project, or maybe not this one, because you were sort of too accomplished there like you know like you you've kind of have your brain you know you're you know you're kind of a thing but if you went back to yourself at an earlier stage knowing now the knowledge that you have gained from from shooting this from shooting other documentaries what would you tell yourself i think the advice i would give to anyone in general is just start don't be waiting for funding if, if you if you just out of college for example just get a camera and start filming something because you don't have access to camera you do you've got one on your phone people have had documentaries on their phone film the person, get access to the people, build up a bond with a person, for example. So say, hypothetically speaking, you found this amazing story. Go shoot them, interview them, talk to them. Get footage from YouTube that you can dress up, make it a little teaser yourself for, for no funding. And then you can take that to maybe go to some funding bodies and say, well, look, I've got access to this. I know I don't have anything, but I have access to this person. Look at the kick-ass trailer I've made of my own with a phone. Can you imagine what I'd do if, if we had a little bit of funding? You know, that's what, that's what I do. I, just, I would just start and you learn 10 times more by starting than you will ever by doing any course. That's a really good one. And then also, I just wanted to touch on collaborative um, partnerships as well, because you were chatting about, about yourself and Kara and, and finding those um, people that make the project better. How do you, or like, what are the qualities that you'd look for in, in those partnerships? And like, I presume it's, it's across the board with every creative field. I think I like I kind of look for someone I kind of get along with. To be honest with you, it's not even a creative thing. It's just I'm already easy going. Do they have basically? I wouldn't have worked with anyone if they didn't have a good track record. Contradict myself what I said before, but I, I, you know when you're looking for someone, you just look at what they've done previously. Um, are they a nice person? You know that's it really. Don't rule number one is don't work with bad people. You know um, regardless how good they are, and that's it really. But I was really lucky with Cara because I didn't know Cara prior to, to starting on this but she she had just made her own short doc that was in Tribeca in 2020 and welcome it, to a bright white limbo it is yeah. amazing it's beautiful it's outrageously good you know so Cara was kind of riding a wave last year anyway um so I was really lucky like I said I didn't know her she was recommended to me by friend and that that's how I met Cara but that was really lucky and the same thing with Simon O'Reilly did the music um I, I just found Simon online and I went, okay that's the sound I'm looking for and like I live in Ennis and Simon is in La Hinch and I couldn't believe I'd never met him before. So that was another thing. And he was really easy going. He was full of ideas. So just kind of look again, it's research again. You just you put your head down, you kind of find out the, you know, you keep going looking at people that are available and who what have they done? And again, there's no secret to it, it's just work really. 
it's a fabulous film i enjoyed it so much thank you so much for chatting with us no problem at all thanks for having me